You guys can have a seat. Let's pray. I can't really say it any better than that, God, so Christ be magnified in me, uh, be magnified in us. And Father, this morning I pray that, that your word uh, be magnified in this room uh, and your spirit fill this place, uh, that the, the words uh, that come out of my mouth are words that uh, you want for us to hear and that I wouldn't be in your way. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been working in youth ministry for 21 years now, believe it or not. Uh, I've seen quite a few trends come and go in that time. 21 years uh, is uh, when I started working in youth ministry. Uh, for my first 10 years or so, I was working with millennials. And for the last 10 years or so, I've been working with uh, Gen Z. And, uh, and myself, I'm right on the line between Gen X and millennial. I'm either uh, one of the uh, youngest members of, of Gen X or one of the very first millennials to ever walk the earth. So I'm uh, one of those two things. I kind of straddle the line. And so I'm, I'm fairly familiar with the thought processes of three generations um, because I'm kind of part of two of them. And for about a decade, I've been working uh, with the third one. Believe it or not, Gen Z is not the youngest generation. Uh, there's a younger generation still, um, but they're not quite old enough to uh, be influencing culture that much yet. Um, although, if you, you know, watch social media, you maybe get a different idea that six-year-olds are way more influential than maybe they ought to be. But, uh, but at any rate, um, those three generations, uh, Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z, those three generations make up a population in our country uh, of everyone between the ages of 9 and 57. Um, and that's right, 57. The, the oldest members of Gen X are within a decade of retiring. Um, and so, uh, believe it or not, Gen X, not really the babies anymore. Um, we like to think, like, we're young, we're the new kids on the block, because that was our band, right? Um, but no, we're not. Um, and, uh, and the thing is, that, that's a really wide sample of trends and opinions uh, and preferences, you know, age you know, 9 through 57. That's almost 50 years of culture's changing power, uh, because I like to say, um, one of the things I, I say frequently is uh, youth culture is culture. Um, that the, the culture in our country is driven and defined by teenagers, whether we like it or not, that's just what happens. And as you might expect, uh, those generations where we have a generation of teenagers influencing culture, a generation of millennials who are like, wait a minute, I thought, I thought it was our time now. And a generation in Gen X is like, we knew it was never our time. We, we never were going to get anything because we're sandwiched between boomers and millennials and they're, both generations are twice as big as us. So we just make fun of everything. So... Um, <laughs> That's <laughs> kind of who we are in a nutshell. Um, and, and the thing is, when you introduce uh, boomers into the mix as well, baby boomers into the mix, um, it's not like more agreement arises, right? It's more disagreement. So four generations that, that in, it, you know, I've worked with in ministry uh, that I'm around fairly frequently, and these four generations rarely agree about, I mean, anything, honestly. Um, finding something that we all agree on is somewhat difficult, but there is one thing probably more than one, but for the purposes of the sermon, the one thing I want to focus on that just about every generation, every person in every generation I've been around agrees on, and that is justice, right? That the guilty should be punished. Every generation I've been around believes this, that the guilty should be punished. Now, we don't always agree who the guilty are. That is sometimes a big problem between generations uh, and, and between worldviews. We don't always agree who's the guilty ones and who deserves to be punished, but we all feel that there is someone out there who deserves to be punished. We almost 
universally feel that it's not us, <laughs> right? It's not me, of course, but someone out there uh, deserves to be punished. We have strong feelings about certain actions or certain views being so wrong that there need to be consequences for them. There need to be punishments for them. If you live them out, if you, if you act on those views, there are consequences, there are punishments. We need, to, we need justice, we need to hold you accountable. And so think about it. We can't stand it when someone gets away with something that we think is wrong. That's kind of a universal thing across all ages. We can't, we can't stand it when someone gets away with something we think is wrong. What about the guy who's speeding? recklessly on the highway, 100 miles an hour, 110 miles an hour, flies by you, weaving in and out of the lanes, right? And then uh, the guy gets off at the exit right ahead, and then a mile down the road, you get pulled over for going like seven over. That's not fair. You know, where was, where was the officer, you know, a mile ago when, when this guy went flying by me and got off the exit? That's not fair. How about, how about the girl who cheats on the test? in her high school class and gets an A while you study as hard as you can for your C. That's not fair. That's not fair. How about when you're driving down Oakland Avenue and someone comes flying out of the gas station and hits your passenger side so hard that it totals your car, but the guy doesn't have any insurance, so you have to pay your own deductible. That's oddly specific. <laughs> None of it's fair. They should pay for what they did, right? That, and, and, and incidentally, this is where cancel culture comes from. We, we lost faith in a system that wasn't providing justice the way we thought it should, so we took matters into our own hands. We demand that people pay for their sins against us, that people pay for the wrong things they do and say against society, and we demand they pay right now. We refuse to wait. Waiting's the worst. So we installed something like, like the frontier justice of the Old West, where we try people in the court of public opinion, we decide their punishment by consensus on social media. We can't stand the idea of people getting away with things that offend us. And so we make sure they get what they deserve. Now, as bad as that is, as bad as it is to see someone get away with doing something wrong, it's not the worst. It's worse when they get caught doing something wrong and nothing happens. See, we can, we can sometimes understand, well, you know, the, the officer wasn't there. He was further up the road. It's not his fault he didn't see the person who was speeding. But what if the guy gets caught? The, the, the cop pulls him over and then lets him off with a warning. Or, or what if the teacher sees the girl cheating on the test but instead of giving her an F, he lets her retake the test the next day. Or what if the Academy Award winning actor slaps the comedian on stage on live national TV and the only consequence is he can't attend the ceremony for a while? What about that? We hate it when people get away with stuff that we think is wrong, but we're furious when they get caught doing something wrong and nothing happens. Where is the justice? It's time to, to, to cry out. It's time to raise all the awareness. We have to bring this to attention. And as bad as that is, there's actually something that's even worse. When someone gets caught doing something wrong, and instead of being punished, they end up benefiting. They end up getting rewarded. They end up coming out ahead. 
It's the CEO of a company that's caught in a scandal who walks away with a multi-million dollar settlement instead of jail time. It's the kid at your school who gets popular by constantly uh, making up and spreading vicious rumors that ruin reputations. Nothing happens to that kid. They get popular. Everybody else's reputations get ruined. That's the kind of thing we blow the whistle on. That's the kind of thing that outrages us, the kind of thing we go public on social media to expose. That's the kind of thing we cancel people for. Not just the person who did the wrong thing anymore, but now we got to cancel the people who let them get away with it. we got to cancel the people who, who rewarded them, the people who let them get ahead. Because in our current cultural climate, this is one of the, the, the worst evils that we can imagine. Not just letting someone get, get, get away with something that they did wrong, that they got caught doing, but, but letting them benefit after getting caught doing something so wrong. It's one of the worst things we can imagine. We can't allow that to happen. The Bible calls it grace. Grace is the cop pulling over the reckless driver, and instead of giving him a $500 ticket, he gives him $500. Grace is the teacher catching the student cheating, and instead of giving her an F on the test, he gives her the answers. Grace is offensive. When my son Seth was in fifth grade, I think fifth grade, I, I had the chance to teach him about grace in a very youth ministry kind of way. Um, my wife Sarah doesn't love it when I do this stuff, when I do like object lessons in my family. It's kind of like the lab where I experiment. And, uh, and we were having this ongoing issue back then uh, where Seth was refusing to eat lunch at school. He wouldn't eat the school lunch. And I mean, I can't really blame him there. Um, so, so Sarah started packing his lunch, right? Um, but he, wasn't, he kept bringing home what, what Sarah was putting in his lunch. He wasn't eating that either. Uh, and so she asked him, well, what would you like for lunch? And he started coming up with these elaborate things that, that she could make, like enchiladas in my, okay? And so she did it. I mean, she was like, a, you know, a cook-to-order lunch for, for my fifth grade son. And, and he still wasn't eating it. He was bringing it home every day. Uh, uneaten. And it didn't matter how much he got in trouble. It didn't matter that we let him pick out the food that we were packing. He just wouldn't eat. Um, but eventually, the lunchbox started coming home empty, and we thought we'd solve the problem. See, great parenting. Parents of the year. We did it. It's done. We can move on. Until, until Sarah found out that Seth was taking these like gourmet, like cook-to-order meals that she was making for his lunch and throwing them straight in the garbage at the school. So she wasn't thrilled about that. Um, when I got home from work that day, she was, uh, we'll say agitated. She was agitated. <laughs> so I quietly went and got Seth, and I, I took him to my car, and we left. I think Sarah thought I was going to end his life. I think she thought <laughs> I was taking him to a field and going to make him dig his own grave. <laughs> And uh, I didn't say anything at all, uh, the whole drive. We went from uh, our house to Sam's Club. I didn't say a word. And I think at that point, Seth probably thought I was going to end his life. He didn't know why we were at Sam's Club. So we went into Sam's Club, and I took him in, and I bought him ice cream. And as we ate, I talked to him about uh, what he had been doing and why he was doing it, tried to get him to see how it was hurting his mom. And, and I also pointed out uh, that he deserved to be punished. I wanted him to understand that he deserved to be punished. But instead, I bought him ice cream. Uh, because I wanted him to, to learn about God's grace. He didn't deserve ice cream, but that's what he got. I was pretty proud 
of my teachable moment. I thought, you know, this is a future sermon illustration for sure. I've waited a long time to share this with you. Um, When Sarah found out that I bought Seth ice cream instead of punishing him, she was uh, less impressed with the object lesson. Um, And and then I got an object lesson of my own. (laughs) Because grace is offensive, right? The guilty should pay for the wrong they've done. If someone hurts me, they should be hurt. We talk about grace, we sing about grace, but I'm not sure we really support the concept. We think we know all about grace, because it's one of those words, it's one of those Bible Christian-y words, right, that we've stripped of all meaning and tried tried to give it these, like, these cutesy definitions, and, and so we can kind of, like, pretend that it's not so offensive. But the way we live our lives demanding justice from everyone but ourselves, I think, shows that we don't quite understand grace as well as we think we do. So, as we start this new sermon series called Grace, The Grace-Centered Family, we thought it was important to do a message on the concept of grace before we committed to making it the center of our family. And so in the Bible, the Greek word for grace is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. It's the root of words like uh, charisma, charismatic, things like that. Um, And it describes a favor or a gift that we don't really deserve. Um, And in Bible terms, from a God who loves to give it anyway. Um, So it's a favor or a gift we don't really deserve, but it's from a God who loves to give it anyway. And and Paul uses that word in in the New Testament more than anybody else in in the Bible. Uh, Paul uses it 96 times out of the the 156 times that it shows up in the New Testament. He starts and ends every one of his 13 letters with this word. Um, Grace and peace to you uh, is fairly common. And then at the very end of his letter, um, near the end of every one of his letter, he reminds people, you know, kind of a benediction, God's grace be with you all all 13 of his letters, um, including the book of Ephesians, which is where we're going to camp out for this sermon series. Paul uses this word 12 times in the book of Ephesians. Uh, like I said, once at the beginning and once at the end, like every other letter. Uh, and then so there's, there's 10 other times uh, in the book of Ephesians that he uses this word grace sprinkled throughout the first four chapters of the book, uh, right before he gets into some specifics about how Christians ought to live in family relationships in chapter 5 and 6. And so before we get into uh, chapter 5 and 6 of Ephesians about family relationships, we're going to look at uh, those 10 times that Paul talks about grace. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning walking through them, those 10 uses in the first four chapters. Uh, And, excuse me, because I'm trying today to be a real preacher, um, we're going to talk about the four main things that grace does for us. See, usually a real preacher would be three, but I'm an overachiever. So four... (laughs) Four main things grace does for us. So we're going to start in in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. For God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So right at the start, 
Right after he, he wishes grace and peace to all in, in the book of Ephesians, we find out that grace saves us. The first thing that grace does, first and foremost, grace saves us. And Paul speaks of the, the glorious grace that God has freely given us and grace that God lavished on us as he chose us and set us apart for adoption in, as his own children and to his family. And so when it comes to grace, God takes all the action. Paul says here in Ephesians, God chose us, predestined us, freely gave us, made known to us the mystery of his will. In him we have redemption. In him we have forgiveness. Nowhere in this whole section is there any mention of, of anything we did or could ever do to earn or deserve these actions that God takes for us. Grace shows us that, that God values us. That God loves us in spite of our failure, in spite of our sin. When we deserve justice and punishment, God instead gives, gives grace. He saves us. God is always the one who takes initiative when it comes to grace. When, when, even when people ignore him, when people act like he doesn't exist, when people work against his purposes, God doesn't turn and smite them. God continues to draw them in to himself and show them grace. God's grace determines our value. God decided a long time ago that you're worth it. Even if you feel like you're not. That's really not up to you. God decided a long time ago that you're worth it. He gets to decide. He made you. And the problem is so many of us have trouble believing that. Believing that God really does value us that much. That God really does convey worth and value uh, through his grace. And that's why Paul keeps talking about it. He continues on in chapter 2. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So in chapter 1, Paul starts by insisting that God took the initiative. God decided to save us by his grace. And now in chapter 2, Paul explains why we needed saving. We were dead in our sins. We were powerless to change on our own. We were being pulled down to destruction. All of us were in the same boat. He, he, Paul goes out of his way to make sure we understand that. You're not better than anybody. We were all there. Or, or like he says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Two times Paul used the phrase, it is by grace you have been saved. To show us that there is nothing we did to earn God's rescue, to earn that salvation. There's nothing we did. In fact, Paul says we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
We deserved the opposite. Grace is the completely undeserved, loving commitment that God makes to us. We didn't earn it. God takes the initiative and says, you deserve something else, but instead I'm going to give you this. He, he should cancel us, but he saves us instead. And, and pretty much all of our experience in life goes against this. Tells us that we, we need to earn acceptance. We need to learn, or earn love. We need to earn respect. We have such a hard time with grace. We have such a hard time with the idea that it's all up to God and there's nothing I can do. That we take this little phrase in Ephesians 2 verse 8, through faith, and we use it to redefine grace into something that we're a little more comfortable with. Through faith, we're like, oh, there's the catch. We're waiting for that one, right? There's the part that I play. There's what I, there's what I do to earn the grace. So as long as I have faith, God owes me grace. Okay, I get it. I understand transactions. Transactions in a capitalist society make sense, right? Wrong. That is not what this means in verse 8. Yes, grace comes to us through faith. That is in the Bible. I don't want to pretend like it's not there. But our faith does not earn God's grace. Let me put it this way. God doesn't owe us grace because we believe in him. God doesn't owe us anything. I, I think that's a truth that I know I need to internalize more. Because I think a lot of times I live my life thinking about it, in, you know, transactionally, that I do this and I do this and I, and, you know, I've, I've committed my life to ministry. This is my career. Surely God owes me something and surely he does not. He does not owe me anything and he doesn't owe you. There's nothing you can do to earn it or deserve it. He doesn't owe you. You know how I know that? The very next phrase that Paul uses in, in Ephesians 2 after he says through faith, the very next phrase is, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So we're saved by God's grace. We're not saved by our faith. We experience God's grace when we put our faith in him. See, faith has a huge part to play, but it doesn't earn us salvation. Faith is a belief that's so strong, it propels us to action. It changes the way that we view the world. It changes the way that we live our lives. So in grace, God makes his promises. God commits himself to his people. God saves us from sin and he saves us from death. And faith is when we trust his promises and live our lives as if we think they're true. God accepts us without conditions, without complaints. God gives us significance. God gives us value, not because we deserve it, but because God decided to make us worth it. God saves us with grace. Trying to earn God's saving grace is a waste of time. So the only thing that's left for us to do is to live in gratitude, to live in humility, understanding that my value, my worth comes from God, to let God shape my identity, to let God tell me who I am, who he made me to be, and to respond to him with worship. We're bad at those things. And even if we accept the idea that there's nothing we can do to earn God's grace to save us, even if, even if we can bring ourselves to that point, like, okay, God saves me. I can't earn it. I don't like that, but I, I, guess, I guess I get it. Even if we get to that point, we still feel like we need to prove that we're worthy. 
We still feel like we need to continually live our lives to prove to God that we're worthy of the love and acceptance that he gave to us. And so we still kind of feel like it's this transaction, like I have to do these things to, to, to prove to God that he didn't make a mistake. Maybe grace saved me, but now I have, to show, I have to show that I'm better than everybody else so God will keep on loving me. And we're wrong again. Check out what Paul says in Ephesians 3. We're continuing to move through Ephesians chapter 3. I forgot to label it this way, but uh, the, first, the first verse here is verse 2, and then we jump to verse 7. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. I became a servant of this gospel by the grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this ministry, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. So here's the second thing that grace does for us. Two, three, and four are faster than one, I promise. The second thing that grace does for us is grace calls us. Grace saves us, and then grace calls us. Paul refuses to give in to the temptation to prove himself to God by uh, trying to be better than everyone else. He, in fact, he calls himself the least of all God's people, which are like, I mean, come on, Paul. You wrote 13 books of the New Testament. You're exaggerating. But I actually think that Paul, in, his, in humility, understood this understood in grace that he was not better. And in fact, he knew his sins better than anybody. And so he could say, I, I am not only am I not better than anyone, but I'm, I'm the least of all God's people. Grace does more than save us. Paul says grace is the power that puts us to work. Grace empowers us with a task. It, it, it enlists us in a mission. It, it infuses us with a purpose. We usually think of grace as the thing that saves us, and it is. But Paul insists that that's not, all it, that's not all it is. It also calls us to action. Because God has acted to save us, we act to serve him. Our service doesn't earn salvation. Serving God doesn't earn our salvation. He already did that. But, but that doesn't mean there's nothing left for us to do. Later on in the book of Titus, Paul wrote, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We are saved by grace, not by anything we could do to deserve it. But we are saved for kingdom work, for ministry and mission and purpose and calling. Salvation is just the beginning of what God has planned for us. Salvation is the beginning of the grace that God pours out for us, but he doesn't save us and be like, all right, hang out, wait on your couch, eventually heaven. God saves us with grace and then calls us with purpose. And if that seems intimidating, that's because it is. That's big. God inviting us to join him in the work that he's doing uh, to build his kingdom worldwide, that's big. That is intimidating. It's especially intimidating if that's all that grace did. If, it just, if God just saved us, I'm like, all right, go build my kingdom. I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. So fortunately, we also find that grace equips us. Grace saves us. Grace calls us. But God doesn't leave us like fumbling around trying to figure out what to do. He gives us what we need to be successful in building his kingdom. In Ephesians 4, 7, moving through the book, Paul says, To each one of us, grace, nine, 
has been given as Christ apportioned it. And then in verse 11, he explains, Christ, gave him, uh, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Wouldn't that be nice? Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Christianity, it's not a religion of works. There are plenty of religions of works throughout the world that you have to do all of these things and have, more good, have your good outweigh your bad, and that's how it works. That's not how God works, not how Christianity works. We don't have to do a bunch of stuff to prove that we're worthy of God's love and earn our way in. We don't have to do that. But Christianity is a faith of action. Because God loves us, we choose to live for him. Grace saves us and grace calls us to ministry, but it also equips us with the tools that we need to succeed. To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Or if you want, Romans 12, 6, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Or 1 Peter 4, 10, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Grace is a gift. It's a gift that saves us, but it also calls us and equips us so that we become stewards of grace. We become responsible for showing, showing the people around us in our families, in our workplace, in our school, in our world, showing them how grace works. We're all saved by grace. We're all called to serve God, but each of us will serve differently because God gives us grace as Christ apportioned it. God equips us specifically and differently. And so we've covered nine of the ten times Paul used the word grace in these passages uh, in, in, in Ephesians, um, outside of the very beginning and the very end. And so there's one left. This one's in uh, Ephesians 4.29, uh, which in my, my youth ministry in Michigan, we used to have a jar. This is a 4.29 jar, uh, and uh, you'll see why in a minute. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So our 429 jar uh, was uh, if, if one of the adult leaders, or honestly, eventually, once we got the hang of it, any of the students uh, called 429 on somebody else, uh, they owed a quarter. Uh, they, they caught them using this unwholesome, tear you down talk. They put a quarter in the jar, uh, and then we gave it to, I don't know, something at the end of the year. I don't remember. Um, but uh, we, that was one of the things we did back then because I wanted to emphasize this verse, right? And if you missed the grace in that verse, I don't blame you. The, the NIV makes it kind of hard to find by uh, translating it a little differently. But uh, literally at the very end of this verse, it says that it may give grace to the hearers. The NIV says it may benefit those who listen. That makes sense, but it may give grace to the hearers. And so this word unwholesome is something we get hung up on. It, it's usually uh, used of spoiled fish or rotten fruit. Uh, it's also used to describe stones that, that, that crumble, uh, that aren't holding up and, and doing things the, the way they're supposed to do. Um, and obviously that could ab include obscene words. This is the verse uh, that we use to, to berate people for swearing. And, and that could include obscene words. Certainly it could. Um, but Paul's concern that we use our speech to build others up, I think, shows what he's really getting at here. Uh, that, that we refuse to participate in destructive conversation. But instead, uh, we use our words to encourage each other by sharing the grace that has been given to us. See, 
up to this point in Ephesians, every, every other use of this, ver- of this word grace in Ephesians, the other 11 times, uh, it's all God giving grace to us, giving grace that saves us, grace that calls us to ministry, grace that equips us. This is the only time in the book of Ephesians that grace is something that people are called to do for one another. And so here, grace connects us. It connects us to God, to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit, yes, but it also connects us to each other. All who have received grace from God are called and equipped for ministry, to to build up God's kingdom and to show God's grace to other people. What does it look like? Well, I think verse 29 gives us a big clue. It seeks to build up and not destroy. See, we live in a hostile world. We live in a culture that's obsessed with individual rights and committed to making people pay for the wrongs that they are caught doing. We live in a culture that's built on fear and punishment, not on love and grace. But we are called to live differently. We are called to be builders, not destroyers. We are called to be loving, not judgmental. Our speech is supposed to be beneficial. Our actions are supposed to be helpful. And as we'll see over the next few weeks in Ephesians 5 and 6, the first place we're called to show that kind of grace is in our families. So, thanks a lot for that, Paul. When we experience grace from God, it's wonderful. It's life-changing. But when someone else experiences grace from God, it can be really frustrating. Because we know they don't deserve it. The closer we are to them, the more we know it. I mean, people really close to us, we know pretty well, and we're like, no way. They don't deserve that grace at all. And it's frustrating. Just ask Jonah. In the Old Testament, God sent him to to preach to the people of Nineveh, and Jonah knew. He knew that God would give them grace if they repented. And they were his enemies. And so instead of doing what God asked, he ran away. He ran away to prevent the people of Nineveh from experiencing God's grace. They didn't deserve it. They deserve punishment. They deserve to be canceled. They deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. Jonah wouldn't do it. I won't show them your grace. I can't stand for it. No. And I mean, you probably know some of Jonah's story. It didn't go super well for him doing that. Um, But God continually showed Jonah grace. God God saved him from a a storm. He saved him from a fish. He saved him from death. He saved him from heat stroke in the desert. But Jonah couldn't handle it when God showed the same grace to his enemies. And twice, God asked Jonah this question. Do you have a right to be angry? And I think that's an important question. Because grace isn't just getting something we don't deserve. Grace is getting the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve death. God gives life. And it's so hard to show grace to the people closest to us because we know they don't deserve it. It's not fair. But considering all the grace God has shown you, grace that saved you from sin and death, grace that called you to ministry and mission, grace that equipped you with gifts and gave you a purpose, grace that connected you to Jesus and to his church, do you have a right to be angry? when God shows that same grace to someone else? Or instead, should we learn to celebrate when God's grace swoops in 
and the people in our lives, the people in our families, they get the opposite of what their sin deserves. And God saves them and calls them and equips them and connects them the way he's done for us. Do we have a right to be angry about that? Or should we celebrate God's indescribable, unconditional love that he pours out his grace on people just like me, people just like you, people who don't deserve it? Let's pray. God, grace is so hard. Every fiber of our being wants to see justice done, and it feels like grace is letting people get away with things. It, it, it's just turning, it feels like it's turning the other way while people hurt others. It's so hard to understand. It's hard to know when to show grace. It's hard to know when to show mercy. But Father, what's not hard is praising you for the grace you've shown to us. Because we know what we deserve better than anyone. But you don't treat us like our sins deserve. You give us so much more. You've saved us, you've called us, you've equipped us, you've connected us, God, in your grace. And so I want to thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we can put grace at the center of our families, uh, we need to have it at the center of ourselves. And, and that's what this communion time uh, is about. We do this every week at Northwest. Um, and, and, and we do it to understand that there's really no way we can show grace to others until we've experienced it for ourselves. Uh, until you admit that you're a sinner with no hope of getting any better on your own, that, that you and I deserve God's wrath and God's punishment instead of his love and grace, until we admit that, we'll, we'll never stop trying to earn God's approval. And until you trust that justice was satisfied by Jesus hanging on a cross to take the punishment for your sins. It's not that God looked the other way. God satisfied justice through Jesus. Until you trust that, you'll never experience freedom. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So when the, the communion tray passes by, go ahead and take a set of cups and hold on to them uh, until we can all take communion together. His body given for us. His blood poured out for our sin. Amen. We don't deserve it, but grace saves us calls us to ministry, equips us for service, and connects us to God and to each other. And so next week, uh, Steve will continue through Ephesians to explore what that grace means for our family relationships. Uh, but for today, let's stand and sing one more song together as we're dismissed today. <laughs>